Good morning. Oh, man. Thank you guys so much for that inspired music this morning. Um, I've truly been blessed. I was back there actually crying. That's something I do quite a bit, if anybody noticed. So my heart's already tender this morning, so get ready for it. (laughs) So yesterday, if you follow me on Facebook at all or anything, you probably saw I put up a picture, um, and it had Tony Evans in the picture, and he was standing next to David Platt. And those are two of my most favorite people in the whole world as far as preachers go. And if I could combine those two men and bring them here for you today, that would be awesome. But you're stuck with me, unfortunately. Um, But one of my favorite preachers, David Platt, he says, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, and that's what I'm saying to you now, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to John, the eighth chapter, starting at verse 1 through 11. So before we get going fully, let's do a little bit of housekeeping, and I want to give you some background and origin of this text. It appears that the story of the woman caught in adultery was not included in the Gospel of John originally. Actually, the style and the language of this narrative is more, has more in common with the synoptic Gospels, and those would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, than they do with John's Gospel. This story can be found, this story cannot be found in the earliest manuscripts of John, and it is absent from very early sources like the Syriac and Latin texts. Even the Greek church fathers seem to have no knowledge of this story until the 12th century. A lot of manuscripts of John that do include the story have a scribal notation to let you know that there's doubt over the story's authenticity or where it should be placed in the book of John. In one manuscript, the story is seen in John 7, verse 36. In another, it's found after John 7, verse 24. And in another, it's found after John 21, 25. And in one set of gospel writings, the story appears after Luke 21, 38. Whoa, that's a whole lot. But does all of this mean that the story is not true? Absolutely not. But it probably wasn't part of John's gospel originally. Even John tells us in John 20, 30, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. In fact, a fourth century church historian by the name of Eusebius mentions the story in his writings, but he did not recognize the story as coming from the gospel of John. So if it doesn't come from the book of John, where does it come from? It's believed that an early Christian scribe saved the story from disappearing from history by copying it from a now lost Jewish gospel called Gospel of the Hebrews. So now that we've had our history lesson, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to stand before your people this morning. Lord, speak to your people. Move me out of the way. Even move my preparation out of the way if you need to, Lord God, and you speak You bring the words that you want, God. Lord, I am your willing vessel. Use me as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're in John, we're going to read through that now. Starting at verse 1, chapter 8, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, the title that I gave this message is Scandalous Grace. And I'm going to explain to you why I call it Scandalous Grace. But as I thought about that title or settled on that title, I started to think about my own life in relation to the story of the woman caught in adultery. And I said to myself, okay, what is an example in your own life or mine where you've experienced scandalous grace? And as I thought about that, I couldn't help but go back to my testimony, which I shared with you guys a few weeks ago. And in that testimony, I talked about living a life before Jesus of crime. And those crimes brought me to a place where I had to stand before a judge and answer for those crimes. Now, the judge that I actually stood before was actually a judge that had mercy. So God was gracious to me on that day. So I stood before this judge and he said, Roman, I'm going to give you five years confined, so inside. And then when you get out, you're going to have seven years that you're going to have to be monitored and watched by us. And that's what you call a probation officer. And so the judge says, you know what? I think this guy has some potential for rehabilitation. So instead of sending him off and and letting him waste these years riding away doing nothing, I'm going to offer him a boot camp program. The boot camp program was a six-month intensive, just like a military boot camp. And in that, you learn a lot of valuable things. I learned so much in that. And you might say, that's scandalous grace right there to get five years reduced to six months. And yeah, that is quite a bit of grace, but that's not really where the scandalous grace is. So after serving the time in the boot camp and getting out, I had to report to this probation officer. And I had to do that for seven years, according to what happened. And so it had been maybe a year, maybe a little over a year, that I was walking out this probation, going to meet with her, doing the drug testing, everything that you have to do that comes as a part of that, keeping a job, all of these things that they have you do. One day, the probation officer calls me on the phone. Now, you might not know this because you've probably never been involved in the legal system uh, and and probably not in Wisconsin either. But in Wisconsin, they have something called truth in sentencing. And I don't know, I haven't looked lately, but I don't know if that's still on the books. But at the time that I was getting in my trouble, this thing called truth in sentencing was on the books. What truth in sentencing said was, if I gave you seven years, you're going to do seven years. If I gave you 10 years, you're going to do 10 years. Now, the old way that things used to be and how you might see a lot is that you see people get, oops, sorry, you see people get their 
sentences reduced for things like good behavior, um, going to school within jail, things like this used to be able to get you some time off. Unfortunately, when I was in my trouble, that didn't exist. And so the probation officer calls me and says, you know what, Roman? I know it's only been a little bit over a year, but I believe you're ready to be a free man. I want to release you from this probation six years early. And the reason I'm going to do that is because the law has just changed in your favor. So the truth and sentencing law had changed. And so she immediately said, let me help you out. Not even a week later, I spoke to her again and she said, guess what? I let you off of probation six years early. The law changed back the next week. If that's not scandalous grace, I don't know what is, right? And, and this, is the, this is why I call it scandalous grace. Because I was guilty. I committed the crimes. I deserved the time. The woman caught in adultery was guilty. She did the crime. She deserved the punishment. But God, in his love and in his mercy and in his grace, he allowed her to go free. But he allowed her to go free without violating the law. See, this is not this is not the old covenant and now the new covenant and now we don't do anything with the law and all of that. And now it's just all about the new covenant and it's all grace. No. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So the law is still good. Look with me at John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So after the celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was going on, Jesus returned to the temple courts despite the danger of being arrested, and he resumed teaching. As the verse says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. As usual, the crowds are drawn to the Savior, and he graciously sits down to teach him. And we know this throughout all of the gospel writings, that anytime Jesus would open his mouth, he would draw a crowd. And so nothing was different on this day. Early in the morning, it says. So people readjusted their schedules in order to hear from Jesus. Verse 3 says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. So as Jesus taught, a small party of Torah scholars and Pharisees approached him, leading the woman caught in adultery. Jesus recognized the men as the same ones who had challenged him the previous day. It's always helpful for us to get a little bit of background on a story in order for us to really get a feel for what's going on so we can place ourselves there, so to speak. Um, And I'm hoping that this excerpt that I'm going to read to you from the Chronicles of the Messiah by D. Thomas Lancaster will help shed a little bit of light on the scene and the setting that's going on right here. The Gospel of John concedes that the woman was caught in adultery. It seems like the sort of thing that could easily happen at the festival of Sukkot, a seven-day party with the incorporation of alcohol, all-night dance marathons, and thousands of little shacks and booths set up all over the city created a recipe for immodesty. The sages also recognized that Sukkot, 
festivities sometimes led to impropriety between men and women. So they separated the women from the men during the all-night dancing that took place in the temple courts. It's a party going on when she's caught in this act. That changes the dynamic a little bit, doesn't it? So let's look at verse 4. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I'm going to have you turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 29. I'm going to take you on a brief detour of sorts to kind of show you something significant about them calling Jesus teacher. There's, there's something significant here about them calling Jesus teacher. If you look at John verse 1, John chapter 1, starting at verse 29, it says, the next day he saw, he is John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you jump down with me to verse 35 now, it says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. There's something very subtle here, and you'll miss it just with a cursory reading or a quick glance at this. Notice John the Baptist sees Jesus in verse 29 and identifies him as the Lamb of God. If you read the verses after that, the preceding verses, you'll also see that after John believed, he immediately went out and started to witness about what he had seen, that he had met the Christ. You would think that after John the Baptist had such a powerful encounter with Jesus, that when he went to talk to his disciples, that they would have immediately received the gospel and said, Yay! Awesome! The Messiah has come. That's not what happens, though. That's not what happens. What happens is they come to be Jesus' disciples in their second encounter. So what's my point? People don't always get it right away. People don't always get the gospel right away. Even John's disciples did not get it right away. So that should give us a little bit of encouragement. That should give us some hope when we're out witnessing and we're out trying to reach the lost. That people don't always get it the first time, but that doesn't mean that we are to give up. I recently had an opportunity to lead a man to the Lord a couple weeks ago. And in doing this, the man said something to me that was kind of profound. He said, I have, I have somebody in my family that's really close to me who's like a deacon, somebody important in the church. He's an older guy, and he says, you know what? I, people have been trying to get me to surrender my life to Jesus for I don't know how long, but I never would do it. But that day he did it. And it was nothing special about Roman. Roman just was available. And I led the man in a sinner's prayer that he might know the Lord. And that's not, that's not anything for me. What I'm saying is don't give up. I'm sorry about this, Mike. Don't give up on people when they don't get it right away. Now look with me, still in John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, 
the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? This is interesting. Do you notice a shift that takes place between verses 36 and 38? If you notice in the previous verses, first John and then his disciples recognize Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then they recognize him later as rabbi or teacher. Why is this significant? It's significant because you need to know Jesus as Savior before Jesus can be the sanctifier of your mind and your soul and all of those other things that come with walking with Jesus. You don't, can't understand some of the deeper things of God. You can't understand things because the mind of man is not capable of understanding some of these things. So I'm going to give you a little bit more. And I know it's a bit of a detour, but it's important. And when we come back, it'll make perfect sense. Here's another story. When Jesus encounters Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So why would Jesus start talking about salvation to Nicodemus right here, who is a teacher and a ruler of the Jews? At this moment, Nicodemus only recognizes Jesus as rabbi or teacher. Nicodemus is still a natural man. So Jesus immediately switches gears and moves the conversation towards Nicodemus' salvation or how he could be born again, according to the text. You see, the Bible teaches us that the natural mind, the unconverted mind, cannot comprehend the things of God. In other words, Nicodemus would not have been able to receive what Jesus was saying until he had been born again. The same goes for you and I. There's no skipping steps in the faith, so to speak. You can't have all the blessings of God and all the promises of God that come along with being a born-again child of God without being surrendered to God and without being saved by God. This was also very instrumental in the life of the, the man that I had an opportunity to talk to. Because as we were talking, we were telling him about the goodness of God. We were telling him about God's promises and God's blessings and how God covers his people and watches over his people. All of these good things, right? And so he's all engaged and he's, he's, he's following but then I asked him a question. I said, are you a Christian? And he said, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm just, I'm seeking. And I said, well, I got some bad news for you. All of these promises, all these blessings, all this good stuff is for those who surrender their lives to Jesus. And right now you're standing outside of that. And I think that pricked his heart. Because we got to give people the bad news before we can give them the good news. John chapter 8, verse 5. All right. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? The scribes and Pharisees were masters of the law. So they were constantly attempting to trick Jesus or catch him up using what they thought they had mastered, the law. You see, the scribes were the people who rewrote the law and taught the law. And the Pharisees were the ones who interpreted and enforced the law. 
But apparently, neither of them had any idea who they were talking to on this day. And to say it a little bit more funny, if you ever heard an old black woman say, who do you think you're talking to? You should duck, because a shoe is coming immediately after. Anyway. (laughs) All right. So, they're trying to catch Jesus in what we would call a catch-22, right? Messianic rabbi Yitzchel Zvi Lichtenstein, that's quite a mouthful, puts it like this. In the time of Yeshua, the power to put someone to death without Roman permission had been taken from the Jews 40 years before the destruction of the temple. Capital punishment was taken from Israel. Therefore, the Pharisees tested him and tried to trip him up in his speech, hoping he would say to kill her. In their question, now what do you say? They were not trying to know the proper judgment. For did they not say Moses commanded us in the Torah to stone women like this? And if that is so, they already knew the sentence. But the meaning of now what do you say is this. Right now, we do not have the power to stone women like these without the Romans. But perhaps you will command us to do this, for you are the king of the Jews. Then they could falsely accuse him before Pilate as commanding to put someone to death without Roman permission, since he was pretending, according to them, to be the king of the Jews. But when Yeshua understood their craftiness, he evaded their question. Amen. There's something else that we see in the scribes and the Pharisees' trickery in the way that they were questioning Jesus. The men said, Moses commanded us to stone such women. The Torah does say that a betrothed woman or a woman engaged to be married who commits adultery is to be stoned. But what the Torah does not explicitly say is that a married woman who commits adultery has to die by stoning. Hmm. What it actually says is that a married woman who commits adultery is to be strangled. So much better, right? So the fact that they were pushing for the woman to be stoned implies that she may have been only engaged to be married. And more than that, she could possibly have even been a teenager. Wow. Now, let's not move past this too quickly. Let's think about what's going on here. We have a woman, quite possibly a teenage woman, who is caught in a sexual act in public. And from there, she is dragged by the religious leaders to the temple court and dropped at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine this? For many of us, and I can't speak for everybody, being naked is probably one of the most scary things in the whole world for you to get caught naked in public. I would think that's up there on the high up on the list of fears, if I'm not mistaken. It's probably like right next to living in the hood and just below spiders, right? It's somewhere in there. Can you imagine that? To be caught in an act like that. But here's, here's what's even more interesting. Can you imagine how these religious leaders, with no regard or compassion for this young woman's life, grabs her and drags her to Jesus? And we see in verse 6 that their motives or their reasons for doing this was not out of righteous anger for God's law, but for the purpose of testing or tricking Jesus 
so they could have charges to bring against him. We should sit with this for a minute because this is what religious abusers do. Religious abusers attempt to use Jesus as a means to an end without concern for the damage being done in the lives of those they abuse. If the Pharisees had brought this woman forward out of concern for doing their Torah duty, they would not have been seeking the death penalty. Why do I say that? Here's why I say that. Another commentator says it like this. The wise sages of the Sanhedrin recognized that God's strict word must be mitigated by God's love and mercy wherever possible. Just as God always had mercy on Israel, so too the courts exercise mercy whenever possible. For that reason, the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin normally tried to avoid issuing a death sentence. The Talmud says a Sanhedrin which executed a person once in seven years was called murderous. The judges of Israel, however, could not arbitrarily set aside the Torah on the basis that they felt pity for the accused. Instead, being good lawyers, they sought legal loopholes. Hmm. So another question that naturally arises from this text is, where is the man that she was sinning with? They didn't bring him. Now, an old preacher told me that where the Bible is silent, you stay silent. And where the Bible is loud, you be loud. And so the Bible is silent right here. So I'm not going to say too much about that. But here's my guess. Here's my speculation, so to speak. I think the guy that she was caught with was somebody of importance. I think the guy that she was caught in that act with may have had some kind of authority in the town. He might have had money. He might have had prestige. He might have had something that would have caused the Pharisees and the scribes to lose something by pressing in on him. And so the man is not brought here to trial on this day. John chapter 8, verse 6. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So since these so-called masters of the law had the audacity To question or test Jesus, who is the true master of the law, Jesus bends down to give them an object lesson. So now I'm going to have you jump around a little bit to Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus gives them an object lesson here. This was a good one for me. I'm like, "Mm, this is good. So I hope it's good for you too. All right. So the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Verse 11, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now jump down to verse 18 in the same chapter. It says, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain as Moses went up. Notice here in these verses that we see numerous times that it says, the Lord came down, the Lord came down. Now look back at John chapter 8, verse 6, and it says, 
This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Don't miss this. Jesus is essentially saying with his actions, you guys think you're the masters, teachers, and interpreters of the law, but you don't realize that today you're standing face to face with God himself, the creator of the law. Verse 6 says, Jesus bent down, but it also says that he wrote with his finger. Let's look at Exodus 31, 18. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, go ahead. There's been much speculation and many great explanations throughout history as to what Jesus writes on the ground in this passage. Popular pastor and writer R.C. Sproul, who's since gone on to be with the Lord, this is what he said he believes that Jesus was doing when he wrote on the ground. R.C. Sproul said, because Jesus knows the hearts and the acts and the intentions of all men's hearts, he believes that Jesus was writing out the sins of the people that were present there that day as he wrote on the ground. Now, I like, I like Sproul's conclusion. I think it's a solid conclusion. I think it's a biblically-based conclusion. Um, but I got something else. If we look at, and I think, his, I think where he arrived at that is from Jeremiah 17, 13. Because there's language used in that verse that's similar to the language found in the prophecies of Jeremiah. So, Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. You see that? Written in the earth, taking on a journey. One commentator puts it this way. On the heels of the water libation ceremony, this passage might have carried particular poignancy and even more since Yeshua had recently declared himself the fountain of living water. This suggestion implies that he wrote the names of the woman's accusers in the earth as he began to write their names in the dust. One after another, they knew that their hearts were naked before him and they turned away and departed. However, what I'd like to show you here in Exodus 31, I believe, speaks more to Jesus' purpose for writing on the ground than it does to what he actually wrote on the ground. Exodus 31, 18 says, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Remember, like we talked about earlier, the scribes and the Pharisees kept referring to Jesus as teacher. But when they didn't realize, what they didn't realize was that they were actually talking to God in the flesh. The truth is, it doesn't matter what exactly it was that Jesus wrote on the ground. If we needed to know it, it would have been included in the text. The significance of this moment is not what was written on the ground, but who was doing the writing. It was God himself doing the writing, just like in the Old Testament. When the Ten Commandments were given to us, God himself wrote them with his own hand. John 8, verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now we need to look back at the Old Testament once again in order to really get the weight of what's going on right here. 
According to the law in Exodus 23.1, it says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. The Jews took the role of witness very seriously and would often put witnesses through rigorous cross-examination before they were proven worthy to carry out their Torah duties. One commentator says it best, and I'm going to use him. The Torah says that every allegation must be established by two eyewitnesses, Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7. In the absence of credible eyewitnesses, the court dropped the case, even if a person's guilt seemed obvious. Oftentimes, the court disqualified witnesses before a trial even began. The judges did not even consider a witness's testimony unless that person was known to lead a godly life and was utterly disinterested in a case. The court automatically disqualified a relative, amen, (laughs) of the accused, an enemy of the accused, or anyone with a shady reputation. In addition, it did not allow testimony from one known to be wicked. Here's another one of these big names. Maimonides, the codifier of Jewish law, says that a qualified witness had to have a clean mind and a clean conscience. Wow. So don't miss the weight that's attached to Jesus saying he is without sin, cast the first stone. The Jews took the law deadly serious. So could you imagine yourself standing there, all self-righteous, stone in hand, ready to stone this young woman? And as you stand there, you suddenly get a very keen awareness and sense of your own sin. You start to feel the weight of what you're about to do. You're about to condemn this woman. When you yourself have sin inside your own heart that God could crush you for right here at this very moment. And as they felt that weight of what was happening, they began to drop their stones and walk away. That's very powerful. Verse 8, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. In Exodus 31, 18, we see that the law was written with the finger of God. But do you remember what happens in Exodus 32? Basically, while Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, the Israelites are down at the bottom of the mountain getting restless. And while they're down there getting restless and impatient, They start to say, hey, you know what? I don't know if Moses is ever going to come back, so we should just figure this thing out for ourselves. And that stupidity led to much more stupidity. So from that, they said, hey, collect all the gold. Give me everybody's gold. We're going to make this golden calf. And we're going to worship this golden calf. So while Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, the people are down at the bottom of the mountain worshiping the calf, engaged in idol worship sexual immorality, drunkenness, and even more. So God in his anger tells Moses in Exodus 32.10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses goes and pleads with the Lord not to destroy the people. 
so that the surrounding nations wouldn't say that God brought them out just to abandon them or not, was not powerful enough to see them through to the promised land. So in the Old Testament example, Moses acts as an intercessor between God and people caught in adultery and sexual immorality. Isn't that interesting? Moses intercedes for a people that are caught in heinous, grievous sin, and he asks God to spare them. Now, look at the stark contrast between the story of Moses and the story of the woman caught in adultery. On one hand, we have Moses interceding on the behalf of people who, according to God's law, had every reason to be destroyed, just as the woman caught in adultery. According to the law, she should have been killed. Then on the other hand, we have the religious leaders in John 8, the very ones who thought that they had been handling the law properly were the same ones who had no love, no mercy, no compassion upon a sinner, but were instead pushing for her death. But now, after asking God not to destroy the people, Moses himself, after coming down off the mountain meeting with God, he sees the people partying. And he sees them worshiping the golden calf and dancing around the golden calf. And Moses gets so angry that he takes the Ten Commandments and he throws them down and he breaks them. And now we'll see in Exodus 34 that God had to write the law for a second time. Look at Exodus 34, verse 1. It reads, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So verse four, I'm jumping down a little bit. Verse four. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Do you see it? Keep your finger in Exodus and now jump back to John 8, 8. It says, and once more, talking about Jesus, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So God comes down twice to write the law of Moses. And we see Jesus in verse 8 stooping down to the ground for a second time. Again, Jesus is showing them that he is in fact God, the very fulfillment and embodiment of the law that they thought they knew so well. Here's something that really jumps out in this discovery that's actually very sad. The very people who have been entrusted with leading others to know God had God in the flesh right in their face, but they were unable to see him because they were blinded by their own knowledge and pride. As the scriptures tell us, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look with me at John 8, verse 9 again. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Look with me one more time at Exodus 34, verse 6. 
The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And this is where I believe this is scandalous, Grace, and why I came with that title. Many scholars and commentators and writers have rightly pointed out the contrast that you see in this narrative between the law of God and the grace of God. But where many of them fail, mostly due to our Western mindset, is that they stop there. Yes, Jesus shows the woman grace, but not at the expense of violating the law. You see, Jesus himself said that he did not come to abolish or destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus loved the law of God, so he would never violate the law of God in order to let the guilty go free. And that's why this display of grace, in my opinion, is scandalous. As we learned earlier, if Jesus simply said to the religious leaders, she can go free or argued for the dismissal of her case, it would have looked like Jesus was siding with those who had gone away from the Torah's values and wanted to see legal authority handed over to the Rome, to Romans. But it would, if he would have said, stone her, they would have accused Jesus of siding with the radical Jews who wanted to see the Roman government overthrown, which would have given them grounds to have Jesus arrested and killed. Rather than attempt to defend the woman who was guilty or bend the Torah, which does not bend, Jesus disqualified the witnesses. He said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. According to the Torah, the eyewitnesses testifying in a capital case had to be the first to throw the stones. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. By asking the people without sin to cast the first stone, the master was saying, if you are clear and righteous as a witness, then carry out your Torah duty. The master's words supernaturally struck at the conscience of each man. No one wanted to be executioner, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the women standing before him, the woman. Without witnesses, there could be no trial. Thus, the Torah required that the woman go free. You see, the law is good, contrary to what you may have been told. But the law can't save you. The law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. But the law does not have the power to give us eternal life. This is why it's important to show people the law when we witness, though. Because the law is the mirror that shows a dying world, shows dying men and women that they are guilty before a holy God. The good news of the gospel is not good news until you have the bad news. The bad news is you're guilty before a holy God for every sin you have ever committed. And because of that sin, you stand in a place where you're separated from God. But the good news is that today you can know him. Today, if anybody is standing here today, forget all of this, right? All of this was good. I thank God that he gave me a word 
all of that. But what I really want to say to you today is that the same grace, the same freedom that was offered to the woman caught in adultery, God is offering it to you today. He's saying today is the day of salvation. When I talked to that young man, he had every excuse in the world. He had every excuse in the world why not to accept Jesus. He said, I don't know enough. I haven't read enough. I haven't learned enough. I said, guess what? None of that matters. You don't need to know everything. But if you would believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. That's the gospel. We don't have to complicate it. And right now, I am presenting you with an invitation. If there's anybody that does not know Jesus this morning, don't let pride, don't let fear, don't let shame, don't let the things that your friends or family might think about you stop you from getting what you need most this morning. What you need most is found in the person of Jesus Christ. What you need is him. You don't need a bunch of rules. You don't need a bunch of pounding over the head. What you need is the person of Jesus Christ. As revealed in the scriptures. If there's anybody right now, I'm going to ask you young or old. I know we don't do this normally. We don't normally do altar calls. But I'm asking today, if there's anybody that's been wrestling with knowing Jesus, please come forward. We would love to pray with you. We would love to help you know more about this wonderful Savior. Dear Lord, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice today that doesn't know you, who's been wrestling with the gospel, wrestling with truth, Lord, I pray that you would pull on their hearts this morning and that you would draw them to yourself. Lord Jesus, would you have them to do business with you, even if it's not before us this morning? Would you please have them take this word, take this truth, go back to their homes and do business with you, God, in that quiet place? And Father, you said that you will reward those who diligently seek you. And so, Father, we are believing that if there's anyone who is going to do that today, that you will come and meet with them. In Jesus' name, amen.